Welcome to Middle East in the Morning with Greg Rome and me, your host on WWDB 860 AM. Back from a month of travel, having been all over the country, to Israel, to France, to the United Kingdom, and back here to Philadelphia to discuss the latest in the Middle East and how it affects your interests, Americans and residents of Philadelphia, at home. We've got an exciting program today. We're down to two speakers instead of three because of the depth of the content that we really want to dig into this morning. First, starting off with Todd Benzman, a senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies in Texas, and then later with Ryan Morrow, one of the top counterterrorism and counter-Islamist experts in the country, reporting from New Jersey on the latest case dealing with the 11 kidnapped children in New Mexico. But before we get to that, there's some news that has been taking place across the country and also across the globe that you should be particularly interested in because it affects your interests here at home. First and foremost, we go to Iraq. Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi has said his country opposes sanctions on any country in a reference to U.S. sanctions on Iran. He said he would have sent a delegation to the United States to discuss exemptions for Iraq's transactions with Iran from the sanctions, and Abadi had earlier stated that while he opposes the sanctions, Iraq would abide by them. Fifteen years since the United States entered into Iraq to overthrow Saddam Hussein, maybe for its original purpose of trying to seek out weapons of mass destruction, but for the clarified purpose later on of eliminating any roots of terrorism from the Fedayeen and the other entities that were in that country. And we have a prime minister of a country that has received billions, if not trillions, of American dollars in defense assistance, humanitarian assistance, foreign aid, and governance reform programs, now saying that he would not like to abide by a key U.S. national security stone of the way in which we try to hold our interests here at home. Now, he's in a little bit of a rough position because his coalition government, which has just been formed after the Iraqi elections in May, is based on three distinct parties, all with their own international actors. First, Muqtada al-Sadr, or the Sion of Najaf al-Sadr, the individual who was one of the most responsible ayatollahs for opposition to Saddam Hussein in the 1980s. The same Muqtada al-Sadr that led the Mehdi army, or a Shia militia that was responsible for thousands of American deaths, took first place in that election. The second group that took uh, power in the Iraqi parliament in the elections in May was led by a coalition of militias called the Golden Army, or in this case, the Badr Brigades and the Dawa Brigades, two names you may not be familiar with, but essentially they act as Iran's hegemonic proxy in the Iraqi parliament. Now, al-Abadi, the current prime minister and most likely to remain prime minister in this new election, after this election, has been seen not necessarily as the U.S.-backed strong horse in this case, but the individual who is most likely to be able to be, um, in one way or another, the person backed by the uh, uh, American government or, or who I think would be the best Iraq interlocutor dealing with the Americans. And then we have this case now of the guy who's supposed to be an American's man in Iraq in one way or another saying that he would not like to comprehend or at least comply with the spirit of what the U.S. is trying to do in terms of segmenting Iranian influence in the region. This has several consequences. Number one, if we look at the way that the Iraqi government has unfolded and actually had a democratic process to elect these individuals, it wasn't different Iraqi factions that were being elected. It was different strains of foreign influence in that country who were representing their patrons' policy and political goals. First, with Sadr, he's the Saudi-backed candidate. 
he's hopefully going to do what the Gulf Arab Emirates and the Gulf Arab autocracies ask him to do. Second, the Iranian coalition and the bloc will do what they ask him to do. And Abadi and the Kurds, number three and four respectively, will try to do what the United States is asking them to do. That would be the logical political goal. But in this case, I think Abadi is trying to supplicate or at least in one way or another, throw a bone to his Iranian neighbors by saying that while he will try to oppose the sanctions in spirit by sending a delegation to the United States, he's also trying to placate the Americans by saying that they'll be on one way or another enjoying what the uh, American government has asked them to do. So we'll, we'll see what happens in that case. The second issue that's really heating up this week is Syria. We now see that the Russians and the Iranians are going head-to-head for influence in a post-conflict Syria. Not the conflict in terms of what's to come when we might see American, Russian, Syrian, Iranian, Lebanese, and Israeli forces all on different sides of a six-sided future war between each other, with probably the Americans and Israelis allying with one another, the Russians being in their own corner, the Turks being in their own corner, and the Iranians still trying to drive a land bridge between Tehran, their capital in Iran itself, through Baghdad, over to Damascus, onto Beirut, and into the Mediterranean Sea. But the really interesting issue with the Russian uh, deployment is, is that a newspaper in Russia two days ago Izvestia reported that Russia has sent an unprecedented fleet of 10 ships, mostly armed with cruise missiles and two submarines to the eastern Mediterranean, with more naval assets on the way, in response to the American military buildup in the region. That was what the Russian paper was claiming. The reason why I think they're trying to stake out a claim in the eastern Mediterranean is for the first time since the Cold War, the Russians will have a deep water harbor available for their warships to be able to access, resupply, repair and dry dock, and be able to claim a stake in this post-conflict Syria. And more so, the weapons are not necessarily aimed at the Americans, but more at the way in which to go to the east. Um, and then besides that, I think that we really have to look at the way in which that these guys are, are trying to, uh, to focus on their deployment. Now, Russia's Congress further reported that Moscow had mobilized two Tor M2 surface-to-air missile defense systems in Syria and put them on high alert in anticipation of a potential U.S. assault. But again, this was the Russian Defense Ministry saying there would be a false flag chemical weapons attack staged by West-backed militants. This is not a American attack which is being planned by the United States. There is no intention for the United States to leave its sphere of influence, which is about 30% of Syria east of the Euphrates River. What this is, is the Russians having false claims to be able to stake out territory in that area. Now, more than anything else, I think that what's important here to recognize is is that we have a situation where the United States needs to decide, does it want to stay in Syria and help the Kurds that supported it in its struggle against ISIS for the last six years build their own polity? Or, on the other hand, do we want to have a situation in which the United States will withdraw from Syria, potentially to Iraq or from the rest of the region, allowing the Russians and the Iranians to compete for influence and the eventual control? of the area where blood, sweat, and tears, whether it be from American soldiers or its allies, have been spilled over the last 17 years since the beginning of the U.S.'s entry into the modern Middle East conflict. Now, if it was up to me, I would decide that the U.S. should, in one way or another, redisperse and reallocate its assets from former allies like Turkey and Qatar, 
and to relocate them into its new allies, its traditional allies who have stood with the United States in its national security interests since 1988 with the first extension of U.S. support for the Kurds in the Iraq, and to take the Air Force Base in Turkey and put it in northeast Syria. Take the Air Force Base, which is in Qatar, and put it in northeast Iraq. That way, the U.S. will be in the middle of it all, will be able to stake out its claim, and one way or another, will be able to ensure that it has control over the areas that at one time were led by the Arab leadership of the autocrats from the 60s and 70s. But for now, should be the American wedge to prevent a Russian-Iranian axis from rising and threatening Eastern Europe. After these messages, we'll be going to Todd Benzman, Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in, from Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations, to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum in the Morning. This is Greg Roman, your host. Next, we have Todd Benzman. Before that, there's a few messages that I was hoping to share with you from our organization, the sponsor of this broadcast, the Middle East Forum. First and foremost, the Middle East Forum issued a report a few weeks ago staging and, and basically laying down the accusation that Islamic Relief, the largest Islamist charity in the United States, and quite frankly, Islamic Relief worldwide around the globe where they're active in over 40 Middle Eastern countries, was in one way or another working or supporting or giving host in its events to extremist organizations and extremist speakers. Some of these folks were coming from Areas in one way or another where they were advocating for homophobia, anti-Semitism, misogyny. And that's just what was going here in the United States. If you look at their connections overseas, they've been banned and accused of being a terrorist organization by Saudi Arabia, by the United Arab Emirates, and by Israel. Now, beyond that accusation in those countries, we have to look a little bit closer of what may be going on in the after event of an election that took place yesterday in Florida. The individual who heads the House Oversight and Government Affairs sub Subcommittee for National Security in the United States House of Representatives, Ron DeSantis, won his gubernatorial primary against a, uh, a field of candidates in, in the Floridian elections. And at this time, this means that he'll be going in one way or another to the general election against the mayor of Tallahassee, uh, David Imes. I'm going to have to get a correction on the name probably for later. But in one way or another, I think that um, 
we have to understand that the results of this election in Florida gives Representative DeSantis a higher national stage to continue his committee's investigation of Islamic relief. There were some pointed questions that were raised by member of Congress Paul Gosar, who was on this program a few weeks ago, about Islamic relief's involvement in supporting Muslim Brotherhood-like type activities, not just here in the United States, but also in Egypt, where one of their top officials served as a key foreign affairs advisor to Mohamed Morsi, the now-imprisoned former president of Egypt and candidate of the Egyptian Justice and Development Party, a, key, a leading uh, member of Egyptian politics, at what, at what, which was one time that of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, a further update that we have in work that's being done by the Middle East Forum is a report on UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. We find ourselves right now with three key pieces of news related to this uh, alleged Palestine refugee, if we put that in quotation marks, relief and assistance agency, which has existed since 1948, since the uh, first Arab-Israeli war, the Israeli war of independence, and which was supposed to have been dealing with, in one way or another, this uh, alleged refugee crisis, not just from the Palestinians who left Israel proper in 1948 and 1949, but also for the million-plus and Arabic-speaking countries that ended up in Israel. On the Israeli side, there was a full absorption of these refugees, where they're now citizens of the Jewish state. On the Arab side, unfortunately, the refugee population, which in any which case almost never expands, but usually contracts, has now ballooned from some five or 600,000 to 5.3 million under the UN's definition of a Palestinian refugee. However, this contradicts with American law. We find ourselves in a situation where the United States only considers an individual refugee if A, they don't have citizenship for another country, B, if they don't in one way or another find themselves having residency in an area where they intend to stay, and C, that they are not a descendant, whether it be that of above the age of a minor, above the age of 18, or a third, fourth, or generation uh, uh, citizen or, or resident of the place in which they reside. So what we have here is one United Nations agency, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, finding that they, in one way or another, are not going to recognize UNRWA's definition, so their actual responsibilities for resettling refugees in post-conflict situations. But then, lo and behold, we have another UN agency, the only agency which is specifically responsible for one alleged refugee population, that of UNRWA. Now, this flies in the wake of not just the definition of American refugee law, but also in the American policy of how it deals with refugees. So the first piece of news that came out was last week, a $200 million cut was announced in the wake of the U.S. reassessing its aid to the Palestinian Authority and to other Palestinian aid agencies. The second piece of news came out in an Israeli report that was released on the Hadashot, or the Israeli news agency channel, on Saturday night, claiming that the United States would not just seek to end funding of UNRWA, but would also try to convince the Israeli government to find another aid provider to take over UNRWA's responsibilities in the West Bank. And lastly, we saw a foreign policy article that came out yesterday saying that the U.S. wasn't just intending on changing its policy towards UNRWA, but would be trying to shift the responsibility for these Palestinian refugees away from the West and over to its Arab allies, whether it be the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, 
where other organizations that are in the area, like the Arab League or the or the Organization for Islamic Countries, to trying to deal with the problem in a near allied area, rather than having the United States provide almost one third of all assistance, whether it be refugee assistance, humanitarian assistance, development or security aid to the Palestinians. Now, if we're not that familiar with the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it falls down on pretty much four or five final status issues. These issues for the last 25 years have been promised to, in one way or another, be negotiated in a final settlement or solution uh, to these very, very complex uh, uh, structural issues between the Israelis and Palestinians. The first we just addressed was refugees. I think that President Trump has taken that off the table with his moves in the last few weeks. The second was recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. That was taken care of last December and actualized in the opening of the U.S. Embassy to Israel in Jerusalem in May. The third issue we have to worry about is borders. I don't think you can actually get a, 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 a settlement on that until those who agitate against those borders, whether it be the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, the main terrorist organization in control of Gaza, are able to find a way to deal with the uh, uh, structural issues that are going on with there. And that might require an Israeli military incursion. It might require the targeted assassinations of Hamas leaders in Gaza. It might require a new generation of Palestinian leaders to ebb up, not those who were in the West Bank and in Gaza from the time of the signing of the Oslo Peace Accords in 1993 and 1994 when they moved from Tunis and Tunisia all the way over to the uh, the uh, West Bank and, and taking headquarters in Ramallah, the, the Palestinian capital in the West Bank, or in Gaza City, the Palestinian governance center in Gaza. The fourth issue which has to be taken care of is dealing with water rights and air rights. This means, are the Palestinians allowed to have a port? Are they allowed to fish a certain amount of nautical miles off the coast of Gaza? Are they allowed to control their own border access points, whether it be along the Jordan River or somewhere between Egypt and Gaza or the West Bank and Jordan? And I don't think that that could be addressed until there could be a guarantee that any control, any Palestinian autonomy of these border crossings will be used for civilian methods and not for importing military logistics, supply, ammunition, and materiel, which would then be used to turn those guns against the Israelis. And the fifth issue is one of identity. This is the right for Israel to exist as a Jewish state within the traditional homeland of the Jewish people, and not just having that right to recognize themselves, but having the Palestinians recognize them as well. On the other hand, it also requires the Israeli recognition of what a Palestinian polity would look like. The Israeli government has recognized the need for what they call a two-state solution since 2009 with the current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech to Bar Ilan University, a university in the suburbs of Tel Aviv. Not once has there been a Palestinian recognition of Israel to exist as a Jewish state. So whether it be water, whether it be refugees, whether it be the capital of the future Palestinian state or a future Israeli state, whether it be the uh, uh, control of, of ports and borders and crossings, or what I think is the most important issue, one of a recognition of mutual identity, there will be no solution to this problem. And that calls for a much, much more greater uh, uh, dealing with the issue that we'll get back to in our next segment after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction 
as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. We're back on Middle East Forum in the Morning with me, your host, Greg Roman. Now, we've already spoken about the trials and tribulations going on in Iraq and also about the latest updates with UNRWA, but I'd like to point our attention to another country which is right in the region, but more of a domestic issue, not necessarily dealing with just the United States security interests, but dealing more with its moral interests. Egypt's highest Sunni Muslim authority has said that there can be no justification for sexual harassment in a country where many people often blame women themselves for the widespread problems they face. In a statement, Al-Azhar University blasted all forms of harassment as a forbidden act and deviant behavior and said that the one who carries it out is a sinner. Criminalizing sexual harassment must be absolute and free from any condition or context, the statement released Monday said. More so, justifying sexual harassment with the behavior or clothing of the woman is a misunderstanding, for sexual harassment is an assault on the woman and her freedom and dignity. Some 60% of women in Egypt said that at one time or another they have been victims of some form of sexual harassment during their lifetime, according to a 2017 report from UN Women and Promundu. Three quarters of men and 84% of women polled said that women who dress provocatively deserve to be harassed. So for the first time, we have ourselves in a situation where the Egyptian government is recognizing a problem that has been prevalent in the West, not just for the last year or two with the evident of the Me Too movement, but also with the last 30 or 40 years since the rise of the women's rights movement, which has really taken place hold here in the United States. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Todd Bensman, a senior fellow for national security at the Center for Immigration Studies. Todd led the Homeland Security Intelligence efforts for nine years in Texas's public sector, and his body of work with policy and intelligence operations was founded on more than 20 years of experience as an award-winning journalist covering national security topics with particular focus on the Texas border. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, can you tell us? Down in Texas, you're pretty close right there to the border. I know we just saw each other a few weeks ago at a lunch, but can you tell our readership or our listeners, what are the current top domestic threats to the U.S. that you can identify coming from that border? Top domestic threats. Uh, well, for one thing, we have to keep in mind that uh, people are coming over the border who do not only speak Spanish. There are people coming over the border who speak Arabic. 
Afghanistan, uh, 20 other countries in the Middle East, South Asia, and Northeast Africa. Uh, these are in the vernacular of government homeland security circles. These folks are called special interest aliens, and a number of them have been tagged as having terrorist connections or terrorist connectivity. And at least uh, one last year made his way through Canada to Canada and conducted a terror attack in Edmonton. And I would say that uh, that is certainly one of the primary uh, national security threats related to the border. Okay, Todd, we need you to stay in one place with a good connection. We're having a little bit of static here. But um, let's, uh, let's ask you this next question about special interest aliens. How are they a threat to the United States? What are individuals speaking Pashto or Farsi doing coming across illegally across the Mexican-Texas uh, uh, um, border or the Canadian-American border? I think what you have to keep in mind is in that context of people smuggling long distances, long range from those parts of the world all the way to the Mexican border is what happened in the European context in the last couple Todd, of stay years. right there. You're in a good spot. Okay. Just don't move. Okay. Uh, are we, are can, you able can, to hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you, but just continue. Just stay right where you are. Okay. Uh, yeah, so the context uh, that we should keep in mind is Europe. Uh, the last few years we've had, uh, we've seen uh, terrorist operatives smuggle in with the migrant flows right across the external borders into Europe and conduct uh, attack after attack, waves of attacks all across the uh, continent. And we would have to keep in mind that that the uh, operatives that breached into the European sphere uh, were sent through the migration flows on uh, with with some deliberation, and that this was probably the first time that this had happened on any kind of a, of a scale uh, like 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 we've seen, and it's a proof of con concept in my mind and the minds of a lot of other uh, people in Homeland Security that a very similar type of tactic and method could be used to uh, swing in over the Mexican border as well. So what recommendations do you have for policymakers to draw a halt to these networks and, and potential terror attacks from taking place on U.S. soil? Well, for one thing, DHS and uh, most of its component agencies are involved in countering the smuggling networks that are bringing people in to, to some extent. We don't know the full extent to which they're involved in counter-smuggling operations, but we do know uh, that there are prosecutions that are happening. There, we had one earlier this month, uh, prosecution and arrest of an SIA smuggler who had brought uh, specialized uh, bringing Yemenis into Texas across the border. Uh, and a year before that, we had a smuggler arrested who had was from Pakistan, was bringing Pakistanis, at least 100 Pakistanis in over the uh, southern border as well. Uh, the extent to which we know whether those uh, aliens that were brought in over the border had terrorist connectivity, we don't know. But I think the issue is just stopping them, getting them interdicted uh, through counter-smuggling. I think a policy issue there would be 
to contemplate this whole issue of SIA smuggling in the context of border walls, uh, the National Vetting Center, uh, other kinds of uh, policies that are being proposed and implemented now, a, a surge of immigration judges to the border to sort of release the, um, to, to ease the backlog of cases down there. And uh, most importantly, uh, asylum fraud detection, uh, very little for asylum fraud detection. A lot of the policies that we're seeing and hearing about concern themselves mainly with Spanish-speaking migrants and almost never with this unique subset of aliens that are also coming across like they did in Europe. And I think that the policies that we're talking about nationally that are being proposed in executive orders ought to take into account special interest aliens, and they don't. Todd Benzman, thanks for your time this morning. Ryan Morrow next after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to the Middle East Forum in the Morning with me, your host, Greg Roman. Before we get to Ryan Morrow, we have another news update coming out of Yemen. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said Tuesday that the U.S. intends to continue backing the Saudi-led coalition fighting Houthi rebels in Yemen despite civilian casualties and questions about the Saudis' commitment to avoiding killing innocents. As Fox News reports, a rare Pentagon news conference, Mattis defended U.S. support for the coalition, saying that U.S. support is conditioned on a Saudi commitment to doing everything humanely possible to avoid any loss of innocent life and Riyadh supporting a U.N.-brokered peace process to end the civil war. The U.S. provides the Saudis with their, and their Emirati allies with intelligence, aerial refueling, and military advice. Moving on to that U.N.-brokered process... A team of U.N.-mandated investigators said in a report that all sides in Yemen's bloody conflict may have committed war crimes involving deadly airstrikes, rampant sexual violence, and the recruitment of child soldiers. Kamal Jandubi, who heads the U.N. team, said that the investigators had identified a number of alleged perpetrators. 
A confidential list of these individuals will be presented to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, he told journalists to Geneva, Al Jazeera reports. Two other news items coming out of Turkey and Libya, first moving towards Turkey. The Defense Secretary, James Mattis, said on Tuesday that the United States was concerned about Turkey's purchase of a Russian missile defense system that cannot be integrated into NATO. The United States already warned Turkey that it would be subject to sanctions and its purchase of Lockheed Martin fighter jets would be jeopardized if Ankara does not drop plans to purchase the defense missile system. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this Turkish issue. First and foremost, the way that NATO works is that it's not just an alliance binding most Western countries and a few in Central Europe, some in Eastern Europe and Turkey, Canada, the United States, and some other outlier countries in the Baltic states to be able to defend one another in case of a conflict with during the Cold War, the subject being Russia. But as most recently, as most was recently seen, a NATO coalition going into Afghanistan to help after uh, the United States was able to file under one of the articles in the NATO Charter a mutual defense clause asking its allies to help root out the Taliban and Al-Qaeda after 9-11, that there's much more than just a common defense here. There's common technology. There's common procurement standards. There's ways in which tactics and strategies have to be meted out. There's a NATO rapid reaction force that's in place that's commanded by a different NATO general from a different NATO country every six months. And if a country goes and purchases a weapon system that is not compliant with NATO standards, that means that that country is not contributing its defense spending or its defense prioritization to the betterment of the alliance. A foreign weapon system, or in this case, a non-NATO weapon system, makes NATO countries less safe. And it's not just that. If you purchase a weapon system from an enemy of NATO, like Russia, the plausibility that Russian engineers and military systems technicians will try to use that radar and surface-to-air missile defense system, like in this case with the potential planned Turkish purchase of an S-400 missile system, the Turks will be giving Russians access to NATO policy and procedures and, and, and secrets that in one way or another will undermine other NATO technologies. It's almost as if you were going to be a bear hiding her cubs and you invite a wolf into the den with the expectation that they'll help defend their cubs, but at the end of the day, the wolf is only coming in there to learn the best way to attack when the bear is not looking. Now, if you want to have this being addressed as an issue where Turkey is trying to, as their foreign minister recently said, balance their alliances with Russia and China on one side and Iran and NATO countries on the other side, we find ourselves into a situation where I think that in, in, in the, the most uh, worst case scenario, that Turkey leaves NATO, which is actually a pretty good option for the United States. In Turkey's best case scenario for themselves, the Russians will have access to a system which will then give them the ability to monitor NATO secrets. So worst case for the West is Russia comes in. Best case is Turkey cancels the deal. Moving over to Libya, we also find ourselves finally having a truce being reached between rival militias in Tripoli that have been fighting for the past six years since the overthrow of Gaddafi that in one way or another were trying to find a way out of this Libyan quagmire. Now, I think that the story coming out of here, as I understand it, is, is that many different militias have been able to rule over Libya and their capital city Tripoli and also some of their other major cities like Benghazi and Zeratun for these last six years, but the UN is finally trying to put in some kind of ceasefire. 
The report from the Middle East Eye states that a truce has been reached between rival militias in Tripoli after a deadly face-off saw five killed and over 30 wounded on Monday. The fighting broke out on Monday, pitted the 7th Brigade from the town of Tarhuna to the southeast of Tripoli against a coalition of armed brigades working under the, un- the Interior Ministry of the UN-backed Government of National Accord. Tripoli is an important target for warring sides in the region, offering control of strategic assets such as the Libyan Central Bank, as well as many other seaports and key infrastructure facilities in the city. Um, now, if I wanted to focus on another country besides just what was going on with those that we covered today, I would also want to try to focus the attention of the United States on the recent rift between Saudi Arabia and Canada. For those of you who are not familiar with what's been going on there, Canada, only two weeks ago, issued a tweet and this is the, the power of social media these days. Twitter can cause diplomatic and international incidents that led to 3,700 Saudi students leaving Canadian universities and going back to Saudi Arabia. Then the Saudi Arabian government kicked out the Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia from Riyadh. And more so, the Saudis have threatened to cut off all trade relations between Saudi Arabia and Canada including several multi-billion dollar investments that the Saudis have made in the Canadian economy. Now, what was the content of that tweet, you might ask? It has to do with the fact that Canada has been a long-time critic of Saudi Arabia's human rights record. Now, this time, there was a statement that was made by Saudi by the Canadian foreign minister in Toronto. She was at a meeting, and that was quickly picked up by the Canadian embassy in Riyadh and retweeted in Arabic, directing the criticism directly at Saudi Arabian authorities. Now, this is a little bit of a tumultuous time to be able to offering Western criticism against a Saudi Arabian government that has actually backed reform. Now, it's despicable that women up until a month or two ago in Saudi Arabia were not allowed to drive. They weren't allowed to go to work without a male escort. They weren't allowed to leave the house for any kind of errand without someone of the other sex being with them. And the Canadians spotlighting this is important in terms of the promotion of Western liberal fundamental rights and democracies and encouraging our allies in the region to do so. But to criticize Saudi Arabia at a time when Canada is seeing reform, when Western governments are seeing reform going on there, is not just a half-hearted measure to be able to express your role as a human rights ombudsman, but it also doesn't take into account the forces in Saudi Arabia that may try to stop that reform in the wake of the reformers now being criticized by the West that they want to hold dear and near as allies and in one way or another as interlocutors for the promotion of human rights. More after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. At any given moment, somewhere in America... A baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. 
These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to Middle East Forum in the Morning. Me, your host, Greg Roman. I'm glad to be joined now by an individual who has gained national, if not international, notoriety for his work on not just counterterrorism efforts here in the United States, but also his efforts to train, educate, and inform law enforcement members from not just the FBI and federal agencies at the national level, but also getting really down and granular to the local level. Ryan Morrow is the Clarion Project's Shulman Fellow and National Security Analyst, a professor of Homeland Security, counterterrorism, and political science. He consults to government agencies and policymakers. He was originally hired as an international security analyst at age 16 for a maritime protection company. His research has led to two speaking engagements at the International Intelligence Summit, billed as the most prestigious conference of its kind. The event material including Morrow's bio, was found inside Osama bin Laden's Pakistan compound. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So you were recruited at the age of 16 to work as an analyst for a security company. What made you at that young, ripe age want to get into this field of work? (laughs) Honestly, it was just OCD. Um, I was obsessed with the topic uh, at, at a young age. Um, I just became interested in it around 1997, 1998, particularly when the Clinton administration was bombing Iraq. Um, and I just got obsessed with it. And at that age, you remember everything that you read um, and, and took lots of notes and then just had one of those miraculous meetings where I uh, met someone who was receptive to what I was doing and wanted to collaborate with me. And then went from there uh, from one thing to the next until eventually ended up here at the Clarion Project and talking with you on the radio. Can you, uh, by fast forwarding now to the present day, tell us a little bit more about what you do at Clarion? Sure. I'm the director of the Clarion Intelligence Network, which is a section of the Clarion Project, uh, the Clarion Project being a non, an educational nonprofit that focuses on Islamic extremism and activism uh, related to stopping that threat, but also assisting uh, Muslims that are trying to reform the faith so that we can put this behind us and we don't have to continue passing this from generation to generation. Now, this is a topic that comes up often on this program. How do you tell the difference between Islam and Islamism? Really, it comes down to the political objectives of the of those that are sympathetic to the Islamist cause. So if they view their faith as a political doctrine, as a constitution for governance, uh, then that is incompatible with the U.S. Constitution and, and American ideals, because we are fundamentally anti-theocracy. Um, so if someone is trying to pursue Sharia as a form of governance, whether they're pursuing that violently or non-violently, uh, then that is something that's incompatible with the United States and something that should not be uh, allowed to succeed here in, in the United States. 
Now, you've been in the news recently with this compound tied to Siraj Wahaj, a, uh, a potential unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center tower bombing. And uh, uh, beyond that, his, his son or grandson was found dead in the desert in a New Mexico compound. Can, can you tell us more about this story and, and what kind of effect it has on American national security? Sure, this is one of the craziest stories I've ever come across in my career. Uh, basically, there were a bunch of relatives of this radical imam, Imam Siraj Wahaj, who is based out of Brooklyn, um, and all of these relatives formed their own individual cult, radical Islamic cult, uh, on the New Mexico-Colorado border. Uh, so, in regards to the individual um, who passed away and was victimized, there was uh, his grandson, Imam Siraj Wahaj's grandson, uh, was a three-year-old toddler who was disabled, had to take medication twice a day just to survive, and this toddler was abducted by his father from the birth mother. Uh, that means the abductor would be Imam Siraj Wahaj's son. Uh, the, this father said that the reason for these ailments was because the boy was possessed by demonic beings, uh, which is a rather popular Islamic belief, uh, believe it or not, and that this, and they said basically him going to medicine, uh, getting medicine and going to doctors was an act of a lack of, lack of faith, incompatible with how they viewed Islam, and so he abducted the child and said we have to give him essentially an Islamic exorcism, and they go missing and are eventually traced to this compound in New Mexico near the Colorado border. Uh, we now know that the young boy passed away in December, um, only a few weeks after he was abducted because he needed the medication for survival. Uh, but this cultish group consisting of Imam Siraj Wahaj's uh, relatives basically rejected that idea. And in addition to having that, those crazy ideas, we also now know we're training kids to carry out school shootings. Uh, we're anticipating the fulfillment of apocalyptic prophecies. Uh, during which uh, they believe that they would be playing a key role and attacking targets within the United States in order to overthrow the government. Now, let me let me stop so, you there for yeah. one second. You're bringing up a pretty heavy accusation here that the children that were in this compound, buried in a trailer in the middle, middle of the desert on the New Mexico-Colorado border, were being trained to commit school shootings. I understand that the individuals, at least the uh, the adults in this case, were released on bail after only a few days in custody? Why would the uh, authorities or a judge allow for these individuals to go free if this was the case? Well, the judge is crazy. Uh, that's, I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. The judge said that they, there was a lack of evidence that they posed a direct threat to the community uh, that could not be handled by having them released and on house arrest with restrictions. Uh, luckily, there have been additional charges filed, uh, so at least most of those adults are not going to be able to go free. Um, and the reason they never have and they won't is that in order to go free, in accordance with that ruling, is they have to find a suitable place to live, in the, and they can't find that. Um, but, yeah, basically the judge said that they could get out on a signature bond. They sign a document. They say, I promise to show up for trial, and then they can get out. 
And if they don't show for trial, then there's a twenty thousand uh, dollar bond that they have to pay, essentially as a penalty. Um, but Islamic extremists have a tendency not to follow laws, <laughs> um, and it was there was a lot of outrage coming from people because the prosecutors specifically requested that these adults, the five adults who were arrested, be held, not uh, allowed to go out on house arrest, because in the past people facing these very same charges have gotten out. They've had taken off the ankle bracelet and they've escaped. And when an Islamic extremist escapes something like that, the consequences can be very deadly. Now, in the same area of the country, we've also seen other sorts of religious fundamentalists. I want to point to the case of um, uh, Pastor Jeffries from the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints that also had a compound in the middle of the Colorado-New Mexico border claiming that he was going to be the next uh, apostle or messiah. And do you find there to be sort of similarities between religious fundamentalism, on one hand with uh, violent Islamist extremists, and on the other with other religions? Or is there something unique about this case that hasn't been seen in other cases of uh, religious fundamentalists sort of uh, usurping the law? Well, what's unique about this case is that they were actually planning terrorist attacks, uh, that they believed that the toddler who passed away would come back as the Islamic version of Jesus, who would be resurrected and identify targets for them to hit. So it's a direct terrorist threat emanating from this compound, um, although other groups like Pastor Jeffries, um, extremist Mormon cult that you mentioned, and others, do have similar violent apocalyptic beliefs um, although their aspirations do not seem to involve um, imminent violence, but with these types of groups, whether they're Islamic or not, you never know what tomorrow holds. All it takes is someone having a whacked-out dream uh, to say, okay, well, now it's time to go and carry out attacks. And uh, I've looked at some of these other groups, um, like the cult of Warren Jeffs and even Scientology and some of these other groups, and yeah, they, there are a lot of similarities here, uh, where you have a singular um, figure or a couple of singular or a couple of figures together that claim to be fulfilling prophecy that violence is something desirable. Uh, that they, they prepare for the day that they get raided by police and indeed even welcome it, and uh, even down to. Uh, for example, the punishments of members of the cults will sometimes be identical. Uh, Scientology, I watched a documentary about that and how they put someone in what they called the hole, where someone spoke out against it, they put them in underground as part of punishment with little food or water, and there's another radical Islamic group that does the exact same thing and also refer to that punishment as the hole. So, so yeah, there's a, a lot of crossover here that, that's really remarkable to see, and there's a double standard in how the media covers one that's radical Islamic and one that is not. So do you think that there might be other cells or compounds in the United States similar to the one found in New Mexico? Oh, without a doubt. There's been this movement to establish independent compounds where you, or where you buy up a plot of land. In the case of New Mexico, it was on a 10-acre plot of land. Um, but there's been this overall movement uh, with cults in general, but also including within the wave of radical Islam, particularly within the African-American prison convert community, uh, since the 80s. The group that's most successful at it is used to be called Jamaat al-Fukra. Now they go by the name Muslims of the Americas. They're the ones that are known for proclaiming to have 22 of what they call Islamic villages across the United States which are compounds of dozens of acres large that they buy and then 
some of their members all move there, and then they have other people who don't live on the compounds but live nearby. And that's just one example. Uh, the research that we've done overtly and, and covertly indicate that there are a lot of groups that have learned from the lesson lessons of Fucra's success and have said, look, uh, Fucra is a radical group that's very cultish. Um, and by the way, there are indications of a link between Fucra and this compound in New Mexico. Um, and so other groups that are, have more mainstream beliefs are going to say, look, if these radical cults that have so little support are able to successfully build compounds and pursue this strategy, imagine what we can do with our more mainstream radical Islamic beliefs. And it's a reasonable lesson for all of them to learn. Um, if you can bring yourself to be deranged and evil enough to adopt the ideology of radical Islam, you would be looking at these things and saying, hey, it'd be crazy for us not to follow that same strategy and build our own infrastructure in order to generate millions of dollars, in order to hide evidence from law enforcement, in order to indoctrinate our followers. Uh, and I think that that really is a look into the future of what the threat looks like, in, even in the United States. So how, how are these compounds, these cults, uh, how are they self-financing? How do they go about getting uh, money, funds? Uh, do they have allies on the outside, uh, sympathizers, as you, you made reference to? How, how do they go about their day-to-day -day operations? Usually it's a mixture of criminal activity. Uh, and so they'll have business fronts that they use for laundering the money, but the original revenue will come from people just having regular jobs. And the, these cult members will often operate relatively normally in society. Uh, some of the criminal activity that they'll engage, engage in will be like welfare uh, fraud, food stamp fraud, anything that they can do in order to get government money because it's more justifiable in their mind to steal that money than to, say, go rob a bank, although they've been known to do that as well. Um, there is a required percentage of their general money that they're supposed to spend um, and give over to the group, whether it's 10% or 30%, depending on their specific situation. Uh, so you have people that are willing to put themselves into poverty for the sake of the group and their cult leader, uh, the Fuqua group with the 22 Islamic villages across the U.S. They have a leader that they follow in Pakistan named Sheikh Jalani, uh, who lives a lavish lifestyle, and members within the United States who I've talked to explain to me how when they're in poverty, they actually crave that. Uh, they're taught that poverty brings you closer to Allah, closer to the truth, um, and closer to having a, a spiritual connection on earth, and so they view that as a good thing. When they are starving, when their children are starving, uh, it, it, they are supposed to push themselves to that limit, and I suspect that that element was also at play with what was going on in New Mexico. Uh, so it wasn't just about malnourishing kids because you don't care about them. It's actually stemming from an ideological belief that that's a positive thing. That's a that's proof that you are faithful. This is the uh, the fiqh, the Islamic doctrine which is in one way or another being interpreted to support the wider leadership's goals while at the expense of their followers. We've got a minute left here, Ryan. Is there one thing that you want to share with the audience about what they should be doing to be able to find more about your work with Clarion, or on the other hand, following this New Mexico compound case? Sure. The best way to get updates would be to go to clarionproject.org or sign up for our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever um, at clarionproject.org. Uh, just type that in, and uh, whichever way you want to remain in contact with us, uh, that's how you can do it. And we always encourage people to 
provide research, their thoughts, or anything they come across, because some of the best information we get is just from people hearing us in the media that just happen to hear firsthand or secondhand something that they think is worth passing on. Ryan Morrow, director of the Clarion Intelligence Network. Thank you. Thank you. Now, as we begin to get to the end of our program, it's important to notice what's going to be going on for the next two or three weeks as we wrap up the American primaries and get towards the general election. The issues that I would encourage you to look at are not just what's going on with candidates' positions in their platforms as it deals with Americans' foreign policy interests in the Middle East, but also how they encourage our law enforcement authorities, our intelligence apparatus, and our national security network and professionals to focus on the threat here at home. It's not so much just about those who are hiding in a compound in New Mexico or are coming across the border, but people who are operating under democratic means. They're operating within the spectrum of the law, and on one way or another, they're trying to justify their support for extremists while calling others who criticize them just the same. Delaney Janchik, our booker, thank you. Lisa Barbunas, our production assistant. Matt Bennett, filling in for me when I was away. And for everyone else, this is Middle East Form in the Morning with Greg Roman. Have a great week.